We've had the pleasure of coming before you a number of times this morning already, and we just take this time to ask you to have your Holy Spirit minister to our hearts and minds through your word. We pray, Lord God, that he would have the ministry of illumination, of turning on the light so that we could see what you've revealed about yourself. Lord, uh, please don't leave us grappling in the dark. Please teach us this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As a student at Moody, I uh, had the opportunity, I think it was just one time that I did this, but there's a cathedral down the street in downtown Chicago, which happens to be the regional seat of the Catholic Church. Um, uh, Archbishop Bernadine was there. I don't know who, who's the archbishop there at this time, but um, it was just a, it's an amazing cathedral. If you're ever down there um, on the north side of Chicago, it's about a block south of Chicago Avenue. It's really an amazing thing to see. And so I decided one day that I was going to, I had some reading to do, and I decided I was going to go down and sit in this giant cathedral and read some of the things I had to study. And it just so happened that the day that I was there, there was a group of school children who were getting a tour by one of the employees of the cathedral. And so I was able to kind of set my book down and kind of listen to some of the things. Uh, One of the amazing things in this cathedral is there's a huge um, crucifix hanging above the altar there. And the image of Christ is carved from the inside of the wood. Uh, it's, it's a huge, it's probably about eight, six to eight feet wide. And so it's, it's interesting. But it's also all one piece of wood, which is amazing to me as well. And um, so the tour guide, she's going through, she's explaining different things in the cathedral that the children see. And she points up to the top above the altar area, and at the very peak, you could see these red hats hanging from the ceiling. There's about five red hats up there. And she says, do you wonder what those are? She said, let me explain it to you. These hats belong to cardinals. And upon their death, they were hung from the ceiling. And there was a decree from the Pope that the day that these hats decayed enough and fell from the ceiling of this cathedral, that their souls would be released from purgatory. Which for a Catholic, that's good news. I mean, to get a release date, you know. Um, and I don't mean that coldly or anything. But, and she's explaining this, you know. And then it finished explaining the decree from the Pope, believed to be the um, vicar of Christ on earth, that these hats, when they decay, they'll fall to the ground. And these children are standing up there looking at it. And she, as a side comment, she says, but of course that will never happen because we keep them very well preserved. I am just like, wow, (laughs) do you hear the words that are coming from your mouth? (laughs) It's really an example of someone's beliefs not matching their actions or their actions not matching what they say that they believe, which is honestly a very easy way to evaluate a religious worldview that someone holds. This morning, as we move into chapter 2 of the book of James, the mark of a maturing Christ follower that we are looking at in chapter 2 is that of following Christ with our actions. Following Christ with our actions. Now, we're going to be looking at James 2, 1 through 13 this morning, and so let me read it for you here. 
You please bring your Bibles on Sunday morning. I recognize that not everybody's reading from the ESV. We have to choose one to have up here on the screen, so I choose this one. I'm not declaring it to be better than another, but um, please feel free to read along here as I read. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man and are are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So our time in chapter 2 of James's letter is going to be focusing on the mark of maturity of a Christ follower, of that of following Christ with our actions. James has a way of spanning his subjects with transitional statements. He kind of closes up um, one topic with a statement that kind of spans it into the next. One of the theories of James's letter that, that I probably appreciate most is that James was compiling his kind of A-game sermons in the letter of James to these young Jewish believers to give them discipleship and that each chapter or each section is almost a sermon in itself. And so he, but understanding a good transitional statement as a preacher, James was using transitional statements to get from one topic to the next. So he closed the section that we learned from last week with this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So as we look at chapter 2 together, we're going to see an aspect of what it means to keep ourselves unstained by the world. We're going to see what being unstained by the world means as in our behavior as a church. And we see this in verses 1 through 13. In verses 14 through 26, we see what being unstained by the world means in our behavior as individuals. This morning, we're looking at what does it mean to be unstained by the way that the world does things as we relate to each other as a church body. So this morning, we're looking at following Christ with our actions as a church body. As you know, there are at least two million laws in the United States in existence. And this was before the most recent health care law. If a man or woman familiarize themselves with these laws at a rate of two per day, they would be a good law-abiding citizen aware of all laws in a small span of 6,000 years. In ancient Rome... 
the Emperor, um, Emperor Justinian ordered that a, a compilation of all of the Roman laws be put together, and this was in the 6th century. With 16 assistant, assistants, a man named Trebonian came up with 2,000 volumes after three years of work. We're never short on any laws to obey, are we? But James gives us a wonderful, and Scripture gives us, a wonderful summary law. And the, and the central idea of our time together is that the law of the land of harvest should be love your neighbor as yourself. It's pretty clear in verse 8 when James says, if you obey the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And that's James's message to us this morning as well. It summarizes our relationships. It's meant to summarize all that God expects of us from our relationships with each other. To love each other as or more than we love ourselves. The first idea that we're unpacking comes from verses 1 through 7 in James. And this idea is that at a harvest, we should be loving each other without selfish motivation. We should be loving each other without selfish motivation. James is pointing out to the followers of Christ that he's writing to here. He's pointing out that their treatment of each other should be without concern for how that, that other person could benefit them. Let's talk a little bit about the culture of the Roman Empire that these Jewish believers were living under. In the Roman Empire, there was a vast difference between the rich and the poor. I mean, we think it's that way today, but this is on steroids compared to the way that the division between rich and the poor is when, in speaking of in the Roman Empire. A person's financial status, for one, would have been shown by what they wore. The rich person would have had several expensive garments made of, of fine silk and woven material. They would have specifically dressed as they did in order to show their status, in order to show the amount of wealth that they had. This is why I believe in other places Paul asks women and, 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 and uh, speaks to women about not braiding their hair with gold and things like that and speaking specifically about we aren't to be relating to each other in this way. We aren't to be showing off our wealth and just pointing to the fact that this was very visually displayed in the Roman Empire. And if you were of a certain wealth, you were expected to show it by what you wore. The poor of that day, on the other hand, were likely to have had just one cloak and the cloak that they became soiled and sweaty while at work would have been the same cloak that they wore when they gathered with the other believers. And so there would have been a vast difference between a rich person within their congregation and a poor person by the way that they appeared. Rings on their fingers also would have been a sign of wealth. Rings were, were displaying of that and golden rings would have been a sign of of even more wealth. Uh, gold rings were so valued during the first century that there's evidence of there actually being ring rental agencies in the Roman world. So if you lived in the Roman world and you were going to your high school reunion and you wanted to show, you wanted to make people think that you'd really made it rather than going and renting the sports car, which somebody might do today, um, they would go and rent rings and, and kind of to show a false wealth, to show a, a display of wealth that, that they actually really didn't have. Roman law in the courts treated the rich and the poor very differently as well. The law refused to allow a poor person, a, per, a person of lower financial status, to bring an accusation in court against someone who is of higher financial status. This was actually the law of the land in the Roman Empire. 
that the poor could not bring accusation against the rich. Yet the rich person could violently drag a poor person into court and it was very unlikely for the judge to rule in favor of the poor person. This could be either because they were expecting some benefit from the rich person who was there or maybe they were just intimidated as the rich person is there in all their regalia and all their their outfit. Um, I know that the status was taken into account in court and that this was shown by the clothing that they wore because one Jewish rabbi actually wrote that in his system with his followers with the people that brought each other to court he required for them to dress identically to each other and if the rich person was not willing to put on a poor man's cloak then the rich person would be required to provide um, rich clothing for the poor person and this was because it was so common for the judge to simply look at the situation and realize okay this person's higher status than that person I rule for them so that's how common this was in the Roman Empire so James will paint what is probably a hypothetical picture of rich and poor of the rich and poor man in a worship service or it could have been um, in even a church discipline a church court, if you will, type situation. He paints this hypothetical picture here. He commands his readers to hold on to their faith. Before we get to that hypothetical situation, let's look at what is James's real command here. He commands his readers to hold on to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ without partiality. Jesus is described here as being the Lord of glory or the glorious Lord. This places a, a description on him that attaches him to the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. That the nation of Israel associated with God's presence at the tabernacle, God's presence in their wandering through the wilderness and God's presence in the temple. It was the glory cloud that would sit on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. It was the cloud that would rest on the tent of meeting that gave direction to the nation of Israel through Moses in their wanderings. Jesus is described here as the rightful ruler, the Lord of Shekinah glory of the body of Christ. James was pointing out that the significance of their faith is who it was that they were holding on to. I can remember um, when uh, my, my last year at Moody, I was uh, an RA. And a part of becoming an RA was meant going to RA training, which was at a camp in Michigan. And a part of that training was going to sessions and then going to a discussion group uh, afterwards where we had questions that we were going through and reflecting on some of the things that we were learning. And our discussion group had this idea that we were going to go and get canoes and paddle out into the middle of the lake and kind of link our canoes together and have our discussion there. Well, after a while, uh, it, you could notice that there was a current to this lake. I guess maybe it was a backflow type of lake off of a river, but there was a current to it. And so uh, the canoes kind of started getting spread out from each other, even though we were holding on to it and things. And and I could stick my hand in the water and notice that there was a current flowing, but I was curious to me that we weren't drifting with this current. Until I looked back and saw that one of the RAs named Brian, he had observed that there was a current going on there, and so he had taken his belt off and strapped it around the support of his canoe and around a buoy that was in the middle of the lake that we had gathered around originally. And by him strapping his canoe to that buoy, we weren't drifting with the current in the lake. This is what James is challenging them to do, to hold fast to their faith in their glorious Christ the King of all. The church, as James writes, to face a strong current of cultural pressure to treat each other differently 
They were to hold on to Jesus, their king and provider. They were to hold on to him despite any social pressures they might be facing. They were to hold on to him without showing partiality. It makes me think of a psalm that I read this week, Psalm 10. Apologize if I turn to it here. Where the psalmist starts in despair with, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? And he describes the, the, um, the disparity in the lives of the wicked. He describes the fact in verse 4, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God, seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, in verse 15. Forget not the afflicted, but in his remembrance of the truth. I love verse 16 where the psalmists say, the Lord is king forever and ever. The Lord is king forever and ever. And it's like James is saying, church, hold on to your king. And we'll sing other, see other kingly descriptions as we move through this. Hold on to your king, he says. This is why he uses the scenario that he does. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and this actually, literally, it's saying, if a gold-fingered man. You know, so, so there's probably multiple rings here. And fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place. You can imagine ushers doing this. While you say to the poor man, you, stand over there or sit down at my feet, which is very insulting. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He is saying, if you treat the poor with disrespect, you're allowing yourself to be stained by the world. Aren't you becoming just like those evil judges who can't see past the wealth So he goes on. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. The church was growing in larger numbers of poor people than they were of rich. James is simply making the observation that the poor were coming into the kingdom of Christ. Many of us have witnessed the rich faith of Christ followers who are financially destitute. Maybe it be in a third world country where we've been on a missions experience or something like that. Maybe even here in Montgomery County. It would have been easy for a believer who is struggling financially, if you remember, that's a big struggle that James' readers were going through here. Financial and social pressures in this land that they had been dispersed to by persecution. It would have been easy for that person to look around and think, how am I going to get ahead in life if these are the people I'm hanging around with? It would have been easy for them to think, I need to take my provision into my own hands here. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In Jerusalem today, in Israel today, if the, uh, Jesus' name would be known as Yeshua HaMashiach, Christ the, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, but the term Yeshu had been turned into a swear word, meaning would, would his name forever be blotted out? And even today, our Lord's name is cursed among many people. And James is pointing to this. James is shaking his readers to their senses to realize that by their showing their partiality, they're accepting the worldly mindset, one of how to get ahead in life. You look for somebody and you, you see if you can use them. 
They, they are working it by the mindset of the ones who would even blaspheme the noble name of their king. They needed to hold to their faith in their glorious Lord. They did not need to reach out for the favor of the local bigwigs. They served a noble name. Our treatment of each other should be without concern for how a person can benefit us. That is to treat someone like an idol. If we look at a person and think, okay, maybe if I give this, maybe if I just spend a little time, maybe if I help them with this, maybe I can get this from them. That is to treat someone as an idol rather than to treat our time with that person, to treat our whatever we give to that person as an offering to the Lord. For us as a church, the challenge may not be about who is rich or who is poor. Sadly, there are churches that intentionally seek to mostly lead wealthy people to Christ. I have seen churches where unfortunately only successful businessmen are asked to be elders. In many small churches, it's, it's about whether or not a person belongs to the right family. And if they do, then they can be a part of the ministry of that church. Or then they can have a part in direction or a say in what goes on there. In other churches, the desire to grow means that they target the desires of the unbeliever so that those people will visit and keep attending. I want to tell you that I specifically looked for these things in Harvest when I was looking at this church of whether or not to come here as a pastor. And I want to encourage you with the fact that I did not see, nor do I see, these specific things that I've listed off to you here that are so prevalent in, in churches when we, when we feel like I've got to take control of the direction of my life and I've got to use my church relationships or, or the direction of my church to do that. I am sure that, that some of you here feel like maybe you're on the outside of relationships and we want to specifically order things so that someone can come into this place, learn of Christ, receive Christ, and want to grow in that love for Christ through relationships with us who are here and that they not feel shut out from relationships that are already going on here. We want to specifically order things at Harvest in that way. We're called to love each other without selfish motivation. It takes intentionally tying ourselves to Christ and standing against the self-serving culture. It takes being intentional about meeting people that you haven't known yet. You know, I want to challenge you that even when we close today, when we close our service, to find somebody that you don't know who they are and simply walk up and say, I don't know your name. Can you tell me who you are? If you're like me, you're going to have to say, I'm sorry, you've told me your name, and you're going to have to tell me again. But you know, that's all right. That just shows that you value knowing them. Okay? And we need to be regular about that here at Harvest. Moving into the second idea here is that at Harvest, we should be loving each other as an act of obedience to God. James is saying to his readers, your treatment of each other should be in obedience to God's commands and in consideration of future judgment. He writes, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Our treatment of each other should be in obedience to God's commands. If we follow Christ with our lives, obedience becomes simple. Even in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, God summarized everything that he expected of his people with the two commands of love God with all of yourself and love others more than you love yourself. Love God with all of yourself and love others more than all of yourself, more than you love yourself. 
The command to love your neighbor is what our relationships will be judged by as believers. It's actually a summary of, the, of six of the Ten Commandments. To love our neighbors as, as, as we love ourselves or more than we love ourselves. If you're loving your father and your mother, you will honor them. If you're loving someone, you won't murder them. If you are selflessly loving your spouse, you will not commit adultery. If you're loving a store owner, you won't steal from them. If you're loving someone, you won't lie to them. If you're loving your neighbor more than yourself, you won't covet what they have for yourself. You see how loving our neighbor more than ourselves is simply a summary of six of the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are simply a summary of all that God calls for us from, and everything that God calls for us from, graciously, He wants to change our hearts to the point that we are doing it out of a love for Him and out of a love for others. Ultimately, it's the command to love others more than we love ourselves that we are called to live by with others here at Harvest. Our, our command here in, from Scripture is called the royal law. This is a term used in, in a situation where you have a kingdom where there is a king and his lords or, his, or aristocrats had their own lands within his kingdom. The royal law would be that that would supersede any laws or rules made by the lords of that land. For us, the command to love our neighbor as ourselves is to overrule any cultural expectations that are placed on our relationships with each other. No matter what the cultural rule is outside of here, no matter what someone's background was before they came to Christ, no matter what their background or present is when they walk through the doors of this church, even though our culture might say, you stay away from that person, you, you don't have anything to do with that person, the royal law that supersedes any other law says, love that person. Love that person. So James goes on, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Rather than replacing the law of God, as I said, James is showing how the call to love one another is a summary of the law. It would have been easy for Jews who grew up under the Mosaic law to think that upon receiving Christ as their Savior that they were now free from God's laws. It would be even easier if they're under social and financial pressure to now start justifying how, okay, maybe this um, showing partiality to rich or poor, maybe that fits under the old law. Maybe I'm free from that now. James is giving a sobering warning that no command of God should be set aside as being unimportant to these Jewish believers. He says, he goes on, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. At the time that James is writing this, this letter to, to these Jewish believers dispersed about the Roman Empire, Jewish aristocrats were commonly being murdered during synagogue services. The reason for this was that Jewish zealots were making their way, or, well, that were present in these synagogue services were becoming assassins. These men followed the law strictly. They would boast as, of having stayed away from adultery, but yet they would justify murdering Jewish aristocrats because of their cooperation with the Romans. It's possible that James is pointing to the hypocrisy of these Jewish zealots as well. He's saying that the royal law calls for us to love our neighbor as ourselves, but the cultural laws of those around them were changing wildly to justify their actions. For us, 
This means looking at each other and asking, how would I want to be treated by this person and treating them that way? It means asking, what does this person need from me and seeking to provide it? It means taking the one another's seriously. In Romans, we're told, be devoted to one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another, accept one another. In Ephesians, we're told, bear with one another, speak truthfully with one another, be kind to one another, be compassionate to one another, forgive one another, submit to one another. This is just two of the books of the New Testament. But taking God's royal law seriously means taking the one another's of Scripture seriously, of what we owe, what we, what we are called for, what we are called to in our relationships with each other. Our treatment of each other should be in obedience to God's commands, but also there's some sobering statements at the end of our passage here. Our treatment of one another should be in consideration of future judgment. James goes on, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is saying, talk the talk and walk the walk as one who knows there will be a payday. And I'm not talking about the candy bar. These statements can be confusing and unsettling for followers of Christ. So we're going to walk through this a little bit here. Of what judgment is he talking about? Let's review what we know about the person who has received Christ as their Savior. We know that the one who has put their faith in the person and work of Christ, they have recognized that Christ took the penalty of their sins on on himself. And in his death and his resurrection, he both paid for their sins and won their new life. And so the person that has received Christ as their Savior has received that the payment for their sins has been credited to their account and they also receive Christ's righteousness on their behalf. And so that's the state that the person is in. But John 1.12 also tells us whoever receives Christ has been given the right to be called a child of God. Romans 8 tells us that that person has been given God's Holy Spirit to dwell within them and that is a spirit of adoption. And, and that spirit causes, it speaks to their spirit and causes them to, to look to God as their Abba Father as one that will not be turned away. And that Holy Spirit is given to them as a pledge of their inheritance, a pledge that God will take them to be in full relationship with himself one day. Romans 8 also tells that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now Hebrews 9.27 tells us that all people will die and will face judgment. There is a coming judgment for all mankind and this is at the great white throne of judgment. Now let me read for you from Revelation 20. Um, If you want to turn there to kind of see what we're looking at, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 12 is what we're looking at first. John is describing a vision of future events and this future event that he's describing is when all mankind stand before the Lord And he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, that being God. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So it's almost like clearing the table and taking your child and going, so you can look at him. So all of mankind is set before the Lord, and everything else is cleared away. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. 
And though it means eternal death for most, I'm so grateful for verse 15 in this situation. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm so grateful that receiving Christ as my Savior places my name in the book of life. It places my name in the book of life, saving me from hell, saving me from the lake of fire. But if you're like me, you read verses 11 through 13 here, and you think, what sort of judgment should I expect then? What am I looking toward? The follower of Christ lives by the fact that all of our sins have been paid by Christ. There is no condemnation. This is why James refers to us as being judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty. Obeying God's commands can be described like, and maybe you feel this way, like walking a high wire. Like walking on a high wire. A lot of times uh, people have described it that it's like walking on a high wire and you can either fall into um, legalism thinking all of it depends on your strength or you could fall into um, just indulgence of, of our flesh or indulgence in whatever it is that we're commanded against. You could fall on either direction of this high wire. But what makes it obeying God's commands, walking a high wire, what makes it obeying a law of liberty is the grace net below us of being a child of God. It's a law of liberty for us because when we fail, we can recall there is no condemnation, that there is a net of grace below us. In fact, it's a net of grace that keeps us putting one foot in front of another when we don't fail. It is in His strength Even our very faith that we believe in is a gift from him. Still believers will be judged but not at the great white throne of judgment. We we follow a law of liberty. But Romans 14.10 still tells us we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Before the judgment seat of God or of Christ, believers will receive back for their deeds. We will receive back for their deeds, whether good deeds or worthless. This judgment will reflect our actions and our motives that the that we lived out here on this earth. Let me describe for you, and you can turn here if you wish, um, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 and following. Paul writes this, For no one can lay a foundation, meaning a basis for their salvation, other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So Paul's in agreement here with Revelation 20 that says those who's there, it's, it's only those whose names are not written in the book of life that are cast into the lake of fire. Our names are written in the book of life. In agreement with that, he describes this as our salvation as being a foundation. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. In other words, the only foundation that we have for standing before the Lord one day is our relationship with Christ as our Savior. And we're called to build on that foundation, he says. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, which would be, I guess, good works out of good motives, or wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So Paul describes almost like um, maybe you've been in an art class situation where you're 
you're sculpting something and the teacher is sitting there telling you, now make sure it's of this thickness and not of this thickness. Make sure you have these gaps and things like that because it's going in the kiln. And if you don't do it right, when it comes out of the kiln, it's, gonna be, it's not going to be what you intended. He describes our lives as being like structures built on the foundation of, of, of our salvation in Christ, which we cannot lose, but they might be build of, built of things that will survive the fire of testing. This is not the fire of hell or anything like that. The fire of, of testing, and this is describing judgment, not testing here on earth but might survive the fire of testing and things that won't survive the fire of testing. And he describes this as being like what we come out with after it comes out of the kiln, that's what we're rewarded for. Okay? That's what he means with if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Remember, he's still built on the foundation of Christ, though only as through fire. Sadly, some of us could have no rewards at all. A lot of, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of what I might even say from up here might have no reward because I know sometimes the motives of my mind behind it might be to get you to like me or, or you know, to make someone happy or something like that. But this is the case of the type of judgment that, that we have to face as, as believers. If I didn't speak to you of this as it's right there in the text, I would be remiss. James makes this final statement here. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Somehow in this, there is a proportion here that our judgment is going to be affected by the mercy that we show to others. Our judgment as believers in Christ is going to be affected by the mercy that we show to others. If you are here and you do not walk with Christ as your Savior, if you have not recognized that the penalty of your sin has been placed on Christ and received the forgiveness that God has for you, I I just need to stop and say, that there's only one judgment then, and that is of eternal fire. And I didn't write that. But I just, I just need to, I just feel led to throw that out there. But for the person who has received Christ as their Savior, our judgment is going to be affected by the mercy that we show to others. Long ago, a Scottish lawyer, well, he was a crooked man, He once rented a horse which died in his care. Understandably, the person that rented him the horse wanted full payment for the value of the horse. This this Scottish lawyer, I'm not sure what difference it makes that he's an attorney or not, but he acknowledged his duty to pay, but he admitted he was a little strapped for cash at that time. And he asked the man if he would accept a promissory note, an IOU if you will. And the person agreed. The man asked if he could distance the date that it was due to him until he would have, uh, thinks he would have enough. And the man said, that's fine, just write what date you think that you will have appropriate. And maybe the man that received the promissory note from him at this time didn't notice the date that he had written on there. But the, the, the crooked man wrote on there the day of judgment, that it would be due to him that the payment would be due to the other man. Well, eventually the horse's owner took the matter to court. There in his defense, the lawyer asked the judge, well, look at the, the promissory note and what it says. And the judge read it. This was his reply. The promissory note is perfectly good. And as this is the day of judgment, I decree that you pay now. Even standing in the righteousness of Christ, our day that we will stand before the Lord with our lives could be today, could be now, could be in this next moment. The law that we will be judged by is the law that we should seek to live by, is what James is saying. He's saying, stop listening to the noise around you 
and focus on the, the summary command that you've been given to in your relationships with each other and harvest the, the law of the land at harvest should be love each other as we love ourselves more than we love ourselves. And I'm so grateful that you are a body of believers that I know receives that. And I know we seeks that and receives that challenge with joy. I'm going to close in prayer and, and I'll invite the worship team to come on up. But, you know, I recognize that, um, you know, this subject of judgment and things like that and, well, what about in this situation and that situation? What did you mean by that? That causes some questions or maybe just wanting some clarification. And this is one of those Sundays that after our song time, I'm just going to slip into the room here. And if, you, if I didn't make something clear or if you wanted further, you know, just further discussion or something like that, I'm making myself available to talk about that. Or maybe if, if talk of judgment makes you concerned for yourself, I would love to have a chance to talk with you about that as well. Uh, let's bow our heads. Father, um, thank you, Lord, for the foundation of Christ. Thank you, for, Lord, for the book of life. All of this talk of judgment would make us, our knees quake if we didn't have the righteousness of Christ that we stand before you in. Lord, if anyone here does not know Christ as their Savior, has not received the payment that has been made, has not asked that that payment be credited to their account, and they expect that they're going to stand before you in their righteousness, I pray, Lord God, that you would make that clear to them how foolish that is. Lord, I pray that you would make it clear to them that today needs to be the day that they say, Lord, come to my heart. Lord, give me your righteousness in place of my own. Help me be your child. Lord, I just thank you for the truth of your word. I pray, Lord God, that you'd help us in our relationships this week that we would see where it might be that we're living in them for ourselves rather than to serve that other person and to serve you through that. And I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.